Hello everyone and welcome to Lockdown Law. I have another great episode for you today and I hope you enjoy. If you have the time and the means, I'm asking you to please support this podcast. Ideally, if you could sign up on Patreon and support Lockdown Law for as little as $5 per month, you'll get early access to episodes. I'd really appreciate your support. Again, Lockdown Law on Patreon, and you can join the community. Or you could visit my website, www.lockdownlaws.com, and donate. You can also email me through the website and let me know what's been your favorite episode so far. And finally, if nothing else, I would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcast. Either way, thank you for listening. Thank you for your support. And I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Lockdown Law. On this episode, I have two great guests. My first guest is Miss Sophia, who is a rising superstar in Florida. She is a legal scholar with a passion for medical autonomy. Sophia was born in the heartland of America, the Buckeye State. I love Ohio. My father was born and raised in the Cleveland area. Sophia, thank you for being on this podcast. Thanks for having me. The other guest we have today is Mr. Sean McBride. Sean has several YouTube shows. He is part of the American Freedom Information Institute. He is licensed in 13 states and is one of the best dressed attorneys in the state of Florida. Sean, thanks for being on this podcast. Looking forward to this very much. 13 states? Uh, that sounds pretty stressful. How many bar exams did you take? Eight. Wow. That's impressive. Yeah, they, they get easier. <laughs> I don't know. I still have PTSD from one bar exam. I took the first one. I said I would never do it again. And then I ended up doing it a bunch of times. There was like a, there was over a decade between the first and the, and the, and the, but I did the first and the second, same time. There was a decade till the third. So, well, that's very impressive. So today we're going to discuss the main source of the lockdown laws. And that's the Jacobson versus Massachusetts case. This was a case decided by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1905. It was a 7-2 to decision, was not even a close call, which will surprise uh, some of the listeners when you find out a bit more about the case. Sophia is going to explain this case to us, and, and basically it's so important because the most significant case the U.S. Supreme Court has heard with respect to the constitutionality of the COVID-19 era restrictions, the court upheld Governor Newsom's restriction on religious gatherings, citing the state's broad police powers relied on in this uh, Jacobson case from 1905. So uh, Sophia, can you give us a rough overview of the facts in the Jacobson case, and Sean will bring you in after 
mm-hmm. for some analysis and you can tell us what you're doing in Florida. Does that sound good? Yeah. Sure. All right, Sophia, take it away. All right. So Jacobson versus Massachusetts, as you said, was a 1905 Supreme Court case. And even though it's over 115 years old, we are still seeing it um, in pretty much every area of this COVID lockdown. It keeps coming up. So what this case was about was about compulsory vaccination laws. Massachusetts was one of only 11 states at the time that had compulsory vaccination laws. Uh, Massachusetts had empowered a board of health uh, to enforce mandatory free vaccines to adults over the age of 21 if they determined it was necessary for public health and safety. Jacobson was a person who had been injured by mandatory vaccinations in his prior home, which happened to be Sweden, and did not want to subject himself or his son to um, another vaccination. And so he refused. And the refusal for getting vaccinated at that time was a $5 fine, which obviously equates to more like $150 nowadays. But over the next couple of years, the case went up to the Supreme Court, where the Supreme Court delivered a decision, like you said, seven to two, that it did not violate the 14th Amendment and that it was uh, reasonable and necessary under the guise of safety of the public and public health safety. So that laid a precedent that has continued to be enforced um, for what we are now seeing as in lockdowns, uh, mass mandates, uh, required vaccinations, all go back to supporting the police powers um, for the state and um, anything that has to do with a public health emergency, which many states are still operating in uh, during this COVID lockdown situation. So that is very interesting background. Um, that continues to be reaffirmed. Um, it was reaffirmed in 1922 um, in regards to in a Zucht versus King, where they said the school system could refuse the admission to a student who failed to receive required vaccination. And we have seen that over and over again, especially in states like California and New York, where they have removed all exemptions except very specific medical exemptions. Um, so this is what has laid the, the foundation for all of the things that we are seeing now. Very good analysis, Sophia. Thanks. Sean, anything you want to add to that? Well, I think Jacobson on his face is pretty simple. And a lot of pe- and there's a lot of talk about the fact that it was only a $5 fine versus a actual forced vaccine. So I think that is an important distinction. But we have Buck versus Bell, which was given by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1925, I believe. Um, and Buck versus Bell allowed a forced sterilization, and that was upheld by federal courts up until the early 2000s. So a lot of people say, well, Jacobson was only a fine, couldn't go all the way to actually putting something on your body. Well, the Supreme Court did okay, people getting sterilized. So, you know, the, the notion that it goes too far to actually impact somebody's body, um, you know, I, I don't know if that's a winning argument or not because of the other cases. The, the other thing that's interesting to note on Jacobson, of course, is it was rendered long before the U.S. Supreme Court did their kind of uh, different scrutiny levels for cases. And so they, they now have a different way of protecting fundamental rights. And a lot of scholars have noted that Jacobson's probably due for an update. Uh, but we haven't seen that as much in the case in the cases. I think the Pennsylvania judge 
did say Jacobson, the Pennsylvania judge that turned over some of Tom Wolf's shutdown actions did say that Jacobson needs an update, but we haven't seen a lot of the other courts talking about how dated Jacobson is and that even though Jacobson hasn't been overturned directly, a lot of the jurisprudence in Jacobson, you know, has changed or the way of thinking about fundamental rights has changed in the intervening 115 years. Yeah, you know, I've thought about this Jacobson case quite a bit. And at first glance, it's pretty alarming. But then I read this decision um, from a federal judge in Kentucky. And this judge actually used Jacobson to strike down um, a restriction on drive-through church services. And so that was interesting to me that... um, this judge kind of flipped Jacobson to uh, to sort of read it another way. And when you go back and read Jacobson, it's important to understand the history. Okay, so in in 1905, there was a, a, a pretty horrible smallpox outbreak, and smallpox was deadly. I think it killed like one in three people. And so what the court says is the restrictions have to be proportional. And so you can make an argument today that – Um, maybe COVID-19 doesn't fall in the same category as smallpox. Um, Certainly what we see so far, the death rate isn't close to what it was in small uh, from smallpox. Um, And actually Jacobson, I think punted to the state legislature too, in one part of the decision. So Sean and Sophia, do you think maybe we were misreading the Jacobson case? Maybe, um, Maybe it, it didn't go that far. Well, I, I think I think your point on the state legislature is is critical. Um, and Jacobson did basically say, it, you know, it's almost a Tenth Amendment case, although they don't really talk in those terms. The U.S. Supreme Court basically said we're going to let the state legislature decide and weigh the risks and the benefits. You know, the risks of people the vaccine versus the benefits of protecting the population. They really threw it down to the state legislature. And I think that's important because a lot of the cases we're seeing right now, particularly county governments, city governments, as we get into talking about masks and other related issues, they don't seem to have that same type of analysis that the U.S. Supreme Court hung Jacobson on because it, it said basically, we expect your state legislature has done a review, they've looked at it, they weighed the risks and benefits. You know, we're not seeing that across the board right now. Y- yeah, yeah, just yeah. To- If I could just follow up to what um, Sean was saying is that you're right. We, the COVID does not seem to appear to be as deadly as smallpox. In fact, the new CDC um, numbers are showing that it's about 99% uh, survival rate, maybe 94 if you were in the upper age category. So it's definitely not in my belief, in the same category as smallpox. But what we are seeing is the same type of limitations placed by the state and local legislators as if it was a smallpox type uh, situation. So you're right, there, there is a distinction to be made there, but we not only are we seeing Jacobson um, being used by the cities, um, but what we are seeing them in is the pandemic bench guides for judges. And I don't know if you guys want to talk about that right now. We can save that for a little bit later. But Jacobson is referenced in almost every single bench guide. And a bench guide, for those of you that don't know, 
instructs the judges on how to proceed with certain issues. And this is called a pandemic bench guide. There's one for Florida. You can just find by Googling pandemic bench guide, Florida it comes right up. Jacobson's referenced as the source for their authority for pandemics, which they are, which COVID is. And so that it, it, it makes it very easy, I think, to transition into, okay, now we need to go back to what Jacobson said and use that authority. That's a great point. So you're saying the bench guides, um, the instructions to the judges, maybe if the judges don't do a, a deep reading of the case, may misinterpret that decision. Is that kind of your thought? Yeah. That's yeah. Answer. And we're seeing that we're, I mean, we have, we have seen that here in Florida um, in the cases that have been used to um, the lockdowns um, the way the judges are ruling the mass mandates, which I understand, you know, it's not really the same thing, but uh, the attorneys that are using that and basing off a constitutional issue are saying that these are the type of laws that come into place that then are used again for compulsory vaccination. Yeah. And again, just going back to the history of the Jacobson case, we got to understand that in 1905, the hospitals, the technology, the infrastructure was a lot different. And again, you know, we're on top of that, um, they were dealing with uh, a very deadly disease. Again, one in, one in three people, I think, passed away from that. So um, I think historical context is important. Um, Sean, when they talk about, in the Jacobson case, the state's police powers, can you explain that to people? What does that mean? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, I think it's important we step back and we think about our U.S. system being state and federal, right? So we get this unusual two-layer system that not every other country has. And, you know, one of the things the U.S. Constitution did was allocate authority between the federal government and the state government. And there are provisions in the Constitution, basically, you know, Tenth Amendment in particular, uh, and then Article One, Section 8, they both imply or directly state that federal government has certain limited powers and then everything else goes to the states. Uh, states have then, of course, have their state constitutions. The early states wrote their own constitutions and then became part of the U.S. federal system. The later states, you know, kind of had their constitutions gone over before they were admitted as states. So they kind of have some, I guess they had some federal oversight or some uniformity to them. Uh, but long story short, the idea was the states essentially granted the power to the federal government. And because of that, that left with the states this whatever power the federal government didn't have, including this general police power, this power to do things for welfare and safety and to set up you know, an orderly society. So that's really what a lot of people hang on with Jacobson is this is the state's general power. Uh, to do what's good for health and safety. So, um, of course, even that, when we talk about this federal versus state power, there are still limits under the U.S. Constitution, right? Even though the federal government's power is limited, uh, the, the states cannot take away protections granted by the federal constitution. So that's kind of where the, you know, the limits on the state police power come in is then you go back to the federal constitution, which does have certain guarantees of rights. Um, so we have to look at how those interplay when we look at those police powers. Yeah, it's such an important point. And um, we forget that there was 13 colonies or 13 states before the federal government even existed. So this this police power, I think most people think of, you know, 
sheriff, a cop. No, it's not really having to do with that. It's more like you said, the health and safety of the, of the people. Um, so this, it's not really listed in the constitution. You know, the constitution doesn't specifically talk about uh, the state's right. broad police powers. I think it was just kind of assumed uh, when the country was created that the states have these powers. Um, what fascinates me is you you hear on the news about, um, you know, people have opinions one way or the other on a, a presidential mandate that everybody wear a mask. That would be unconstitutional, correct? Because of what we just talked about. It's the, it's the state's police power. So, so a president could not do that. Would you agree? Um, I'll, I'll take that one first. Sophia, maybe you can add your thoughts to it, but I would, I would generally think no under article one, section eight, right? If you list, if you read article one, section eight of the U S constitution it enumerates what the powers of Congress, i.e. the laws, the federal government can pass. However, you know, I think is now currently an open issue. Um, it got opened partially by a recent action uh, of the current administration. Uh, the CDC uh, recently, and I know there's litigation going on, but the you know Center for Disease Control did a rent moratorium, which was a huge power grab by the U.S. federal government. So uh, there are there are law professors and authorities out there saying now, if the CDC's power extends as far as you know blocking people from being evicted from their houses or apartments, then probably the federal government does have the power to do a mask mandate. So I think it's an open issue, right? I mean, I, my reading, my interpretation of Article 1, Section 8 is way too far. Uh, but now, apparently, because of some recent actions in this year and open litigation, maybe, maybe not. I think we're going to have to wait for the courts to tell us. And Sophia, what do you think about uh, a federal mask mandate would that be constitutional i mean i wouldn't put it past the abilities i kept thinking to myself how would that happen you know we saw recently and i think it was the town hall um where joe biden said you know he would consider doing a mandatory we should think about doing a mandatory vaccination and the first the, the moderator the interviewer said well, how would that work? And he's like, well, you'd have to encourage and go state by state. And so then he he goes from like it being like, oh, well, maybe not a federal, but maybe I would enforce it via putting pressure on the governors of the state or the local counties. Same thing with the mask, he said. So um, I think that, you know, where I would be concerned about it becoming a federal mandate is if we do get a, a Supreme Court decision that changes it. That's where I thought maybe... I could see it coming from there, but we do see it being a state specified power. And we know from state to state from the childhood exemptions um, for schooling and how that has gone, California, New York, uh, Louisiana have removed all of their exemptions except medical. And then California and New York have even limited medical to the very minimal um, options. So we do know that it is a state power, but now with the way things are going, I wouldn't leave it the possibility of it becoming federal at some point. I'm not sure that quite the avenue that way would go, but there are things that we never thought we would see, right? I think Sean would say, what about the CDC limiting the ability for people to um, not having to pay rent? Um, that was something that we didn't think would ever happen. How did the CDC have that power to do that? 
So things have happened under this pandemic that we've never thought would happen before. And so I think it's opened some avenues that maybe that could happen. Yeah, that, that's a interesting point, Sean, um, about the rent moratorium. Uh, I'm sure the government would argue commerce clause or something mm-hmm. related to commerce. Um, yep. I, you know, I personally think the masks are a good idea and maybe we can get into that a, a bit later, but from a legal perspective, if you read the Jacobson case, you know, they talk about the state's broad police power and deferring to the state legislature. So um, I, I'm not so sure a federal mass mandate would be constitutional, um, but interesting, interesting to think about. Sean and, and Sophia, can you tell me what's going on in Florida? And um, Florida is not unique. There's a, a couple other states with these uh, mandatory laws. Could you explain um, what you guys have been talking about on your on your YouTube and, and what specifically is going on in Florida? Yeah, I'll start off and then I'll let Sean take us where this has gone because it's opened up a lot of doors. Um, So Sean and I were in a group together, an attorney group um, for local attorneys, and right when COVID happened, February, March-ish, probably March, somebody in our group posted an order from a local judge, and it said COVID um, emergency hearings or things that would be heard during COVID, and some very clearly emergency things would be heard. They were listed, but at the very bottom forced vaccination hearings was one of the items that was listed. Someone in the group had posted it and all of us kind of were like, huh, that's weird. Like, well, we don't have any forced vaccination going on here. We've never heard of that before. That seems very bizarre. So Sean and I messaged each other and said, Hey, have you ever heard about this? And I said, no, but there's a mom in one of my mom groups who brought this up. And I think they're just, they're being crazy. That's, I, I don't know anything about this. And he was like, yeah, so that was the end of it. We didn't really talk about it again until about 60 days later, maybe 45 days later, someone um, had posted somewhere, came across my feed that there were, Florida was requiring some traveler forms to be filled out when you came in from New York or Louisiana at the time were hotspot states. On the bottom of that traveler form was Florida statute um, that um, listed a forced vaccination requirement. So we realized very quickly that Florida had a statute on the books that, re- that allowed for forced vaccination, that gave the public health officer the full ability to enforce forced vaccination and forced quarantine. This is something we had never seen before. It had never been brought up. We'd never seen it on any other forms. And so immediately I messaged it to Sean and I'm like, this seems insane. I can't even believe that this is here. And we've never seen this before. And that just kind of opened a can of worms where we started going down a dark hole of figuring out like where this has been used, when did this come up? And it turns out it had been on the books for quite some time. Um, back to t- originally it was in the 90s and then amended in 2002 um, with another amendment that had been put in um, to the Florida statutes. So that kind of set the tone for Sean to take off um, in a, a a whole area. We did the YouTube videos um, and then Sean started his nonprofit and I'll let him kind of take over. But that that is where everything started and kind of how we got here today. Yeah, I think, you know, that that's basically it. I mean, surprises most citizens that there are laws, public health laws out there that have been put on the books and a number of states have rolled them out. Um, you know, 
virtually everybody's got quarantine isolation law saying that you know public health official can quarantine and isolate people if it becomes necessary because of a public health emergency or outbreak um, but number of states florida included go the extra level of saying hey we can we can force vaccinate people um, these laws they vary from state to state florida's gives all the power to a state health officer um, maryland gives it to the governor uh, what we have particularly taken issue with is, of course, you know, going back to Jacobson, you know, Jacobson talked about, as you mentioned, Ian, the state legislature and the fact that there should be kind of this legislative process, this oversight of the risk and the rewards. Uh, it seems like most states have now just tossed the uh, decision making to an officer of some sort, whether that be a state health officer or governor. Usually it's some person who's empowered to make the decision. So rather than having this legislative oversight, input of the people, you know, uh, open hearings, the types of things you would typically expect in a legislative process, now usually it's just like, well, force vaccine or not, let the governor decide, let the state health officer decide. So, um, you know, from a Jacobson perspective, in many ways we've gone way farther than Jacobson. Uh, yet these these statutes, you read them, they're on the books and they're there. And and the state of Florida, in no uncertain terms, and it's written, you know, forms has said they've simplified it. They say we have the authority to force a vaccination. I mean, if you read the gist of what they write on their forms, they don't talk about all the qualification rules, Jacobson issues. They just say we can do it, and that leaves people in a very unprotected state. So when you say forced vaccination. Um, is that literally the, the government sending a, a police officer to your home with a, a nurse or something to shoot you up with a vaccine? Or is it going to be like in Jacobson where they just, it's a monetary fine? Um, what, what does the statute mean when they say a forced vaccination? You know, the Florida statute is not 100% clear. It does say, and Florida has this provision that a lot of other states don't have. Uh, Florida and Maryland are the two probably unusual ones, but Florida says that they can use law, that the state health officer can use law enforcement officers to carry out a vaccination program. So uh, what exactly that looks like, we don't know. It's never been used. It hasn't been tested. So we don't know what that looks like. But in Florida's case, uh, there's there's statutory language saying use law enforcement to carry this out. I, th- I don't know whether that's bring a doctor and a nurse to your house, uh, whether you're deputizing the officers to give the shots, whether you're hauling people back to a central clinic. Uh, but Florida says use law enforcement officers to carry it out. Uh, Maryland's order is a little bit different, but it says that if doctor, it basically says if, if medical professionals refuse to carry out the forced vaccinations that the governor can compel them to do so. So uh, one way or another, both have granted the government authority to implement this forced vaccine regime, even if there's resistance. You know, and I think we're all on the same page with this, that um, none of us are anti-vaxxers. And uh, I think the frustrating thing is when you talk about this, you get labeled as such. I definitely am am not an anti-vaxxer. I'm a, you know, I love history and you look at polio and smallpox. This is about individual freedom. Uh, is is that a fair statement? I think, it is yeah. I, think, I think it's for, I think that covers both of us. Yes, we're both in that camp. Yeah. yeah. I so, think that 
if I if I could just chime in, I think that we talk about an eroding of freedoms and it becomes a very slippery slope, right? And I am all for, you know, things that 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 will keep people healthy. That's that's great. What we're talking about here is the the, the freedom and the, the constitutional issues that may come. Let's say that this is this is allowed. What's to prevent castration of people for reproduction? Um, and put that under the the guise of public health, right? So, um, and I think Sean talked about this a little bit in in Buck v. Bell. Um, where are we going to where are we going to draw the line to say that it's okay? Can we remove reproductive rights from people over you know saying that we you know their their mental health or their their physical health should prevent them from reproducing. Um, that we're talking about a slippery slope here when when those things get the door gets open to these freedoms. And that's really why as attorneys and people who love constitutional law, we start looking at this and how it might when this this door got opened with this pandemic, how this might affect future decisions. And I think that that's what this is all about. Yeah, and I, and I and I bring a moral issue into it, which is, I mean, there vaccines have risks. They may be small, they may be large. There's a lot of debate about the risk of this particular vaccine that's currently contemplated for COVID-19. But even the U.S. Supreme Court has recognized, you know, that vaccines have risks, and people people are going to get injured. That's part of how they set up the whole compensation plan and the whole system under 1986 Act is they recognize that. So we, we know vaccines have risk. And so for me, part of it's a risk allocation thing. You know, at what level should the government be involved in allocating risk to people? And there's a kind of fundamental issue here of, you know, you are, you are indeed forcing a risk upon people if you do a forced vaccination scheme and you're not having their input on whether they want to take that risk or not. So that brings out a lot of the notions that we talked about, you know, kind of forcing people to do things against their will, uh, which seems contrary to what the original idea of the U.S. Constitution was. And then there's talk about pairing this with an ID card or a microchip or something that you could place under an LED or under infrared light and see whether you got the vaccine or not, which kind of opens a whole system of tracking and following people you know once you have people having to show an id card to engage in commerce or whatever then how how far could that go um you know and what what limits do you put on that excellent points um and we talked about the buck v bell case that was actually my second episode so for those of you um, who haven't heard about that case i strongly urge you to listen to that episode buck v bell it will blow your mind um let me let me play devil's advocate here. Um, and and how do you answer this question where um, you know health officials say that the vaccines don't work unless everyone gets it, and it's your civic duty to get the vaccine. Let's say you know for COVID nineteen, if they present that argument, um, how would you respond? Sophia, you want first or second on this one? I'll go second. Go ahead. All right. So I I think there's two layers to this. Um, One layer is if you want to ask people to take a vaccine and you say it's good for society, I I very much believe in open information, a democratic society. You know, put your arguments forward, state why, ask people to help. 
you know, get people to sign up. Uh, there is kind of a slippery slope going on right now. There's a lot of government-funded studies where they're testing different information campaigns and different wording to try to get people to take the vaccine. And then that becomes kind of the slippery slope, right? At what point do you go so far that it becomes a propaganda campaign? Uh, but putting that issue to the side, I think if you give people information about the vaccine, the vaccine risk, how it was developed, how it's different than other vaccines, and you say, but we really want you to take this, you know, yes or no. I think that's that's cool, right? That's a democratic society. Uh, I think maybe the government does have some kind of planning role to take in that, and that's perfectly fair. Uh, to go to the other extreme and say, we're going to make you take this medical risk. Indeed, some people will get injured. Uh, some people will probably die from the vaccine. I mean, the New England Journal of Medicine did a piece, I think it was June-ish, June-ish of this year, June 2020, where they said, um, you know, states should think about doing mandatory vaccines, but when they do it, they should put money aside because people are going to get injured by the vaccines. Um, you know, for me, that's a bridge too far. I mean, now you're actually, you're trying to keep people from getting injured, and now you're going to do something that's actually going to injure other people. Um, and I think, you know, this whole idea of involuntarily injuring people against their will uh, is not what, you know, our government should be doing. So that that's kind of how I come out of the analysis. And it's consistent in many ways with Jacobson, because Jacobson said there should be a risk-reward-benefit analysis, which I haven't seen done, right? I mean, no legislative body has sat down with all the information, looked at all the risks, looked at all the benefits, looked at all the issues with the vaccine, and made that decision. So certainly now we're too far, and unless we had some kind of major legislative action around this, I don't, I, I don't think the administrative part of the government should have the constitutional power to do it in, in any regard. So my answer comes from the fact that I am a personal injury attorney. So when my clients are injured for something negligent that happens to them, I have somebody to sue and I have a remedy to correct that. In 1986, for those who aren't aware, the ability to sue vaccine manufacturers was removed. That to me poses a huge issue when you want to mandate something. So the mask thing, yeah, there's not a ton of, I mean, there are people that will argue there's issues with, with people wearing masks. I think those, those are minor comparative to injecting a foreign substance into someone's body and what could happen because there is, I think we can all agree that there's a no one size fits all for every medication procedure. There are always going to be risks with anything, anything, antibiotics, people are allergic to penicillin. So by now taking away my ability to sue someone to recover the damages to myself, say I can't work any longer, um, I don't have anyone to care for my family, who is going to pay for that? The vaccine compensation program that's been set up is not only extremely difficult to get the money from, it's a long and winding process, it's a compensation program. It's not the same thing as the ability to sue a manufacturer for negligence. And so that's where, that is always where I will come back on this issue because my duty is to be able to compensate my clients for their, for negligent actions. And that is what the basis of my practice is. So that's what my response to that would be. Good answers. Yeah. You know, I see this as sort of like a scale with, with all these restrictions, um, during the COVID-19 lockdown area, I think at the top, the most offensive 
restrictions have been the government, you know, shutting down businesses, um, telling people they can't gather in large crowds, you know, you can't go to church, things like that. And then the next tier would be, you know, the masks. I find that, uh, again, less offensive, less intrusive. Um, the government's not taking away your ability to make a living. The quarantines too, um, you know, those do make sense. And we have a long history of that. Um, Alexander Hamilton and his wife, Eliza, back in the late 1700s, early 1800s, uh, they were actually quarantined um, when they traveled. There was an outbreak. I think it was a, a yellow fever outbreak um, in Philadelphia. And uh, even Alexander Hamilton got quarantined in, in Albany, New York. And, you know, they're limited in time and, and it makes sense from a, a health standpoint. Um, so I, I kind of view those in, in different tiers. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what actually really offended me out here in California, <laughs> uh, I'm a surfer, and there was a couple weeks where Governor Newsom actually said, you, you can't even go surfing, um, which is ridiculous because I live in a rural area of California and I can go to a place and surf where the next person around me is about a football field apart. Uh, and then it changed to these very strange arbitrary rules where um, you, you can, you from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m., you can go to the beach, but you can't sit down on the beach you can walk or go in the water. Um, and so what happened was I actually took my dad, who's a, a disabled Vietnam veteran. We went to the beach one day and again, the next, I'm very safe with them. I take this seriously. He's, he's in one of those high risk categories. So we're sitting at the beach and of course, a sheriff and an ATV comes up and hassles us. And I understand, you know, he's doing his job and following orders and we didn't actually get ticketed, but that just kind of got me thinking that, it's so black and white. Our response, our governmental response to this has been so black and white. There's been very little flexibility. And um, that's been the most frustrating thing for me. Yeah. And I, I think there were notions of that in the descent to the Nevada cases, because they had the Nevada cases where they wanted to get to the U.S. Supreme Court because, you know, basically they were saying churches were limited to 50, but casinos could have much larger occupancy. And the churches said, hey, this isn't fair. And they went to the U.S. Supreme Court. U.S. Supreme Court decided not to hear it, but there were several judges that dissented to the U.S. Supreme Court not hearing it. Long story short, a lot of the a lot of the justices on the U.S. Supreme Court said, "Look, if there's an emergency, government gets power." But then, you know, as you get more information, the emergency wears on. You've got to start backing off just these blanket approaches, you know, and you have to get more nuanced. And I think that's at least what seems like a couple of the U.S. Supreme Court judges are pointed that way, and it seems to make sense, right? Okay, yeah, I mean, you know, something major happens, you know, you have to react fast, and you're like, shut everything down, let's figure out what happened, let's get a plan, let's go, right? And that gets you for a little while, but then at some point, you have to say what makes sense, what protects liberty versus what doesn't, and I think a lot of the governments have lost track of that, right? They just said, emergency, we're doing this, and they throw out a blanket, and then they just leave the blanket there, and they never go out. They never go back and revisit it. Yeah, I don't know why the barber shops couldn't uh, be able to open outdoors, or the the um, you know the hair salons and things like that. Um, those people have just been devastated. 
here in California. And, and you make a really good point about the casino. The, the case that went up to the U.S. Supreme Court, when you look at Govern, Governor Newsom's restriction, at first glance, it seems very reasonable, you know, no more than 100 people inside a church, which is fine. But you can see how the churches kind of feel discriminated against. Uh, like you said, there's not a limit on casinos. Or how about the people protesting? Um, although I interviewed um, a professor, Professor Harris, and he made a good point. He said, well, at least the protests are outside, um, which is a bit safer. Um, but still, I mean, you can understand the, the church's perspective there. Yeah, no, I think there was it was Kentucky. I think you referenced the Kentucky case where they had even closed the outdoor churches for a while. You know, you couldn't do a drive-in church. And so that really raises the questions of the rationality. And I think that's one thing a lot of the scholars have said, and I think I agree with what Jacobson is. You know, if you modernize Jacobson, you would probably layer a strict scrutiny into a lot of these shutdowns, right? Are they, you know, are, are these the least restrictive means? Uh, have we done a rational review of it? You know, um, we're not seeing that really. And nobody seems to have gone back and said, hey, Jacobson's 115 years old. We got a lot of cases after Jacobson that apply this kind of reasoning to fundamental rights cases. And so I think that's what's missing right now. And, I, and maybe if the U.S. Supreme Court gets a hold of it, maybe they'll do what myself and some other legal scholars think should be done, which is, you know, layer additional analysis on the Jacobson, right? Not just the state, if the state legislature says yes, but also apply that kind of strict scrutiny criteria to the state legislature taking these types of actions. Yeah. One thing about the face masks that do drive me crazy is I don't understand when I'm driving on the road and I see somebody else, they're in their car by themselves and they're wearing the face mask. Yeah, well, you know, I, I did. It's a little bit of a side, but I did a piece on this at one point. If you, if you read the CDC guidelines on wearing your mask, so if you're trying to comply with the government regulation at your state or local level, and then also following the federal guidelines on how to wear your mask, you know, the CDC guidelines say you should wash, you should wash your hands, then install your mask, never touch it, and then you know, when you remove the mask, immediately dispose of it or put it in for washing and then wash your hands again. So you really can't comply with the federal guidelines on how to wear your mask properly and follow your state guidelines without doing stuff like wearing your mask in your car. But then that, of course, means you're wearing your mask outdoors, which in a place like Florida and probably parts of California gets quite uncomfortable because it's hot out. Um, it just points to the whole fact that a lot of these things have been put out in a very uncoordinated way without looking at the total effects. And, you know, there, there's nobody that stopped to say, Hey, let's coordinate everything. Very interesting discussion. Sophia, you have anything to add? I do. I, um, one of my good friends is all in favor of forced vaccination, forced pretty much anything. Um, he thinks that, the reason that we have to go to such extreme um, requirements is because the American people are too dumb to think for themselves. Um, and I think that that if you kind of take a step back, you are kind of, if you review some of these restrictions from the government, it is almost like they're talking to kindergartners. And we all know there's different varying of, of, of people's ability to follow instructions out there. But that is the reason that he said that he's all in favor of this because people just can't be logical about it. 
And I don't think the American people take too lightly to being told that they're too stupid to understand how to prevent disease. Now, I, I worked as a customer service cashier at a place uh, during law school and, and undergrad, and some of the grossest people would come check out pulling money out of their bra, sneezing on their money and handing it to me. So I can understand to an extent we all need to get back to basic understanding of, of germs and viruses. And we've gone to a point, it got very scary to a point where people never even thought to think of their other fellow human of what if I was immune compromised? What if you were just sneezing and I, I might die because if you just passed me something. Um, so there is an element to all of this that I think like, okay, great. We have come to a point where we have all had to take a step back and take a look at ourselves and how we behave. But the government has taken that one step further and enforced some pretty draconian um, actions on us that have led us to take a step back and say, whoa, maybe this might be infringing on our constitutional rights and where is this going to all end? So it's just a very interesting um, that there are people out there that say that this is absolutely uh, for our better good. And I I know one of those people and we can agree to disagree. Yeah, and I think there's a fundamental notion here, and this is, again, another one that's not written in the Constitution, but, you know, I I believe when the Constitution was written, everybody contemplated that there would kind of be full and open information and dialogue. In fact, the U.S. Constitution was all based on debate and people bringing different points of view. But one thing I have seen a lot in this pandemic is kind of this idea that, you know, these government officials have information, but they don't want to give it to the people because they don't want people to get confused or they don't want people to argue against them or they think it's for the greater good. And so I think there's a lot of our fundamental notions of democracy are actually being challenged here uh, because of this information flow. And I mean, I've actually, you know, on the mask issue, right? I mean, there's, there's quotes out there of some people saying, well, yeah, we told people not to wear masks at the beginning because we were trying to save them for the healthcare workers. Well, if that's what they were doing, they should have they should have said that, right? I mean, that would have been a democratic way to do it is say, hey, we, your leaders, public health officials are saying don't wear a mask because we need to conserve them. No, they came out and said they don't work, and then they changed their minds that they did work. And it really does fundamentally go to a democratic process of this free information flow, this speech that was I believe, fundamental to the way the U.S. system was established, right? The concept that we all talk through issues and that we exchange ideas and we reach compromises. And that whole process is being challenged right now. Well said. And, and Sean, what's the name of the nonprofit that you're um, doing some work Ameri- Yeah, American Freedom Information Institute formed this year, 2020, really in response to a lot of these freedom issues we're seeing. And you know, uh, the mandatory vaccines is kind of one of our prime issues right now. Um, just, you know, a lot of people don't even know, going back to the fundamental democratic issue, a lot of people don't know that there are these statutes on the books. So that's one of our first missions is just to get a large base of the population to know that these laws exist, right? That's, we think that's fair to a democratic society. And then teach them how to be advocates if they wish to change the law. Um, and then there's other embedded issues, of course, you know, we're starting to see more and more First Amendment issues come up with this, where people are trying to restrict people's speech about freedom issues or try to direct speech a certain way. So there's a whole kind of symphony of freedom issues that are all intertwined. But, you know, our fundamental thing is get people knowledge about issues, let them make up their mind and, and be fully informed. 
Sophia, anything else to add? Yeah, I just, one last thing to add. Um, we talked a lot about Florida. We know what's going on in California, but there is um, states, uh, several that have similar forced vaccination laws or forced quarantine laws on the books. Um, Sean and I did a YouTube on that because there is, if I'm sure you've got listeners from all over the country, each state has a different uh, public health or public safety law on the books of some sort. Um, some of them are more restrictive than others, but it would be good to know just to be an informed citizen that those things are out there. Um, and that's all we want is that everybody needs to be informed. I think people need to do a little bit more uh, research on what their state laws are. And I think a lot of that has come to the forefront of people's thinking, wow, I didn't know the state could shut down my job and take away my inability to work. I didn't know the state had the ability to force vaccinate, if that's what it comes down to, or restrict my ability to go to work if I don't take a vaccination. Perhaps it won't be as extreme as somebody coming to your house. Um, but maybe there will be a requirement so that you can't work at your at your place of employment. And we just want to inform people so that they're aware that those things are out there. And like Sean said, if you choose to, you think that maybe those should be changed, then you know, joining Sean's nonprofit or getting some information from him is a great place to start. This was an excellent discussion. Um, this Jacobson case is so important. Um, this will come up again, I guarantee it. So I hope people better understand this case um, because this has been the precedent for the lockdown laws. Um, so I really appreciate Sophia and Sean, your time, uh, your work on these issues and um, encourage everyone to uh, get involved one way or another. All right. Sounds good. Man, it's just great, great interview. Yes. Good. Thank you. The information provided in this podcast does not, and is not intended to, constitute legal advice. Instead, all information, content, and materials available on this podcast are for general informational purposes only. Information in this podcast may not constitute the most up-to-date legal or other information. Listeners of this podcast should contact their attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal matter. No reader or listener to this podcast should act or refrain from acting on the basis of information on this podcast without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Only your individual attorney can provide assurances that the information contained herein and your interpretation of it is applicable or appropriate to your particular situation. Use of and access to this podcast or any of the resources contained within the podcast do not create an attorney-client relationship. The views expressed at or through this podcast are those of the individual author writing in their individual capacities only, not those of their respective employers. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this podcast are hereby expressly disclaimed. The content on this posting is provided as is. No representations are made that the content is error-free.